Welcome to C's for Creepy. My name is Elise. And my name's Courtney. Join us every week as we discuss our favorite true crime and paranormal stories. From A to Z. Welcome back to another episode of C's for Creepy. Thank you so much to everybody who tuned in for last week's episode. We love seeing all of the downloads. So once again, thank you so much. We we love seeing the downloads and we love seeing the reoccurring listeners. It is what brings us back here every week. Absolutely. Um, let's just get right into it. Yeah. So we're covering H this week. And I am hearing H with hitchhiking. I'm not gonna like this. No, you're not. I no, no, you're not. But it's a bananas case. Is it a well-known one? Yes, it is. It's very popular. But I really wanted to cover it. So here we are. What I'm thinking? Yeah, excited for it. I'm a hundred percent sure it's the one you're thinking of. Okay, I'm really excited about it. Now, does it start with a pretend? Miriam Webster this week. Okay, so I have brought up hitchhiking a few times in previous cases, mm-hmm. so I figured that it warrants a definition. According to Merriam-Webster, hitchhiking is to travel by securing free rides from passing vehicles. While I truly would like to believe that humans are generally good, I do not know how comfortable I would be accepting a ride from a stranger who has no accountability for my welfare or safety. Absolutely not. Like, but we are in a, like, time of technology. Could you imagine hitchhiking and having, like, an AirPod strapped to you and them finding you within, like, a day? I don't want to be found. I want to get to my destination. Okay, well, that's not an option. (laughs) Not an option, my friend. I, like I said, I mean, like, we accept rides from, like, Ubers, which is essentially just calling a stranger to our house or even cab drivers too it's just i think the accountability is what makes the difference Mm -hmm. so well and like with a cab and an uber they know exactly who picked you up at what time and where you're supposed to go and where that vehicle had went mm -hmm, they're 100 it is accountability mm -hmm. but no absolutely not i would not be walking in a dark road in the middle of the night trying to pick people up or trying to get picked either way. You, well, that's exactly it, too. Like, maybe you're just trying to be a nice person who picks up someone unassuming off the side of their road and I don't know what they seem. Like, no. from both sides of it, it's just, I really want to believe in the good in people. I just, I don't trust my own judgment when it comes to someone that you see from a distance and picking them up. Right. And, like, what happens once they're in your car? Yes, your spidey senses are tingling. But how do you get them out? Fuck politeness. Fuck politeness. If you, like, your spidey sensors are like, oh, sorry, like, this is, like, as far as I can take you, good luck finding your next ride. Bye. Like, that's that. But you still have to get them out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're out. Bye. I don't know. I don't know what else to tell you, but that's why, like, as far as I'm concerned, for me personally, like I said, I do not trust my judgment that well, so I'm just going to avoid it. <laughs> Unfortunately, you and I are both also easy targets. 
yes, we are small women that just easy target. Easy target. 100%. Just we would be part of the statistic. I don't want to be a statistic. No. That's my goal. Yes, yeah, so you know, <laughs> take rides from people you know. Yes. Or like I said, accountability. Mhm. So actually the internet is surprisingly divided about hitchhiking as well, with just as many sites encouraging it as condemning it. Which I was very, very surprised about, but I guess that it is kind of a trend or um, something very common when people travel overseas or go to different countries. A lot of people use hitchhiking to get around, and then in turn, they've had good experiences or they've had experiences, so they continue to do that for people that are also hitchhiking. I'm assuming they did not grow up in Canada with the Highway of Tears. Probably not. Okay. Because, like, eh. Nope. Hard pass. This practice has gone way down, though, in popularity. Um, in this day and age, uh, the golden era of hitchhiking was in the 1970s, which we also had quite a few serial killers. Mm-hmm. Um, it is important, though, that we should bring up that we are very privileged, that we do not have to rely on hitchhiking, because many people still do. They're, that is the mm-hmm. only form of transportation available to them next to walking, which sometimes just is not feasible when we're talking towns away. So, like I said, it's just important. Um, if that is you, then I'm sure you don't need me to tell you this. For any other listener out there, if you do have to rely on hitchhiking, you do not have to accept a ride from somebody you don't think is safe. Try to use your intuition. If your spidey senses, like, say no, you don't have to accept a ride from anybody. You can wait for the next person. Mm-hmm. So the consensus is be prepared to wait and that you do not, that you are not obligated to accept every ride that pulls up. Unfortunately for everyone, this is a crime podcast. So clearly my case is going to be a worst case scenario. I think you've also tainted me from hitchhiking. Oh, good. <laughs> I feel like a huge part of this is like an absolutely not is just solely on you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it's not my fault that it's a crime podcast. Well, I mean, it is my it fault. Is it's a fault. crime podcast. <laughs> but it's not my fault that people murder hitchhikers. <laughs> I know. And like I said, I was reading quite a few blogs where, you know, people were like, yeah, just be safe, be prepared to wait. You know, I, I've i only had one bad experience hitchhiking, and I've done this so many times, so I would continue to do it. Like, there's a surprising amount of people that are positive towards it. hmm I wonder if maybe not in North America. No, you, like, I think even still, like, like in I North said. In North America? I think so, yeah, because okay. people would do that overseas. They'd see someone here on the side of the road, and they would do that as kind of like a way to... Uh, Pay it forward, yeah, if you will. Mm -hmm. So, okay, yeah, okay. All right, on to my case. (sighs) Only one sentence in, and you've already done fucked me. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the case of Colleen Stan. Colleen J. Stan was born December thirty first, nineteen fifty six. When Colleen was twenty years old, on May nineteenth, nineteen seventy seven. She was hitchhiking to a friend's house in Northern California. Since Colleen had hitchhiked from Eugene, Oregon, she felt like she was an experienced hitchhiker 
and she had actually turned down a couple of rides before her life would be altered forever. A man and his wife and newborn pulled up beside Colleen and offered to give her a ride. Seeing the woman and baby in the blue van gave Colleen a false sense of security. Mm-hmm. The family was made up of Cameron and Janice Hooker, the Hooker family, mm-hmm. which is an unfortunate name, but they're not great people. So, mm-hmm. not much is known about either of their early lives. What is known is that after graduating high school, Cameron started work working at a lumber mill. When he met his future wife about a year after, uh, Janice was 15 years old when they met. So five-year age gap. Hmm. What is known about Janice is that she came from an abusive home with no sentimental attachments before meeting Cameron. When their relationship began, Cameron introduced Janice to bondage and sadomasochism. Of course he did. Obviously. Uh, One of his favorite activities to do was to hang the girl by her wrist while she was nude and hit her repeatedly with a bullwhip. The couple married on January 18, 1975, at which point Cameron told his wife he intended to kidnap a woman and turn her into a sex slave. Red flag. I would think that being strung up by my wrist and hit with a bullwhip would be mine. But, but you know what? Everybody <laughs> has their own thing. Like maybe it was mutual agreed upon. Like it was not. Oh. Okay. Um. In fact, that was one of the conditions that Janice said before she consented to her husband kidnapping a sex slave was that she would be safe from any more of his beatings in order to get pregnant, so she could get pregnant and carry a pregnancy to term safely. Oh. But she also did not want him to have penetrative sex with the sex slave as well. So, this actually isn't the story that I was thinking of. I don't oh, think. Oh, really? Um, but no penetrative, penetrative, no penis and vagina. Penis and vagina. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So. I was trying to think, like, what, like, just your punching bag at that point? Essentially. Okay. Essentially, we'll get to it, unfortunately. Okay. So this brings us back to the ride that Colleen accepted from the hookers. When they pulled into a gas station, Colleen left to use the restroom, but when she returned, a wooden box was on the seat beside her. It was strange, as the box wasn't there when Colleen first got in. But she didn't bring it up. After they had been driving for a while, Cameron drove to an isolated area where he put a knife to Colleen's throat and forced her to wear the wooden box, which was which weighed around 20 pounds. And he forced it to her to wear it on her head. And like this was a huge box and it was lined with carpet. It was extremely tight so she could hardly breathe. And it was, like, locked on. This was extremely disorientating, as the box deprived Colleen of fresh air, light, and muffled sounds. She was also blindfolded, gagged, and handcuffed before the box went on. Oh, God. Once at their home, Colleen was led down to a cellar where she was hung by her arms above her. Her clothes were removed, 
Cameron whipped her repeatedly. Once Cameron finished beating Colleen, he brought Janice down and the pair had sex in front of Janice, which, like, that that's the worst foreplay I've ever heard of. Yeah. When Cameron finished, he placed Colleen chained up inside a crate that was only slightly larger than a coffin. She would be held captive and tortured by the hookers for seven years. Fuck. So Colleen was kept in the box for upwards of 20 hours a day. When she wasn't inside the box, she was being tortured for Cameron's sadistic pleasure. This included being whipped, electrocuted, burned, put on a rack and stretched for hours at a time, being starved and having her head held underwater. And that's just to name a few. She also went through periods of starvation, losing 20 pounds in her first month of capture. Colleen wasn't allowed to wash herself either um, for a while, like, I think it was, like, months before she could have any sort of shower. Oh, my God. At first, while Cameron respected his his wife's wishes that he, like, for the penetrative sex, Mm -hmm. he was still sexually excited by this pain that he was putting Colleen through and would molest her. And, like, that involved inserting things into her that, yeah. After a few months of this, existence. Inspired by an article Cameron had read in a pornographic magazine, Colleen was forced to sign a document stating that she was a sex slave and that Cameron was her master. He did not use his real name on the document that he created, but used the name Michael Powers. Like, really? The fake name you come up with? Okay. Uh He also fabricated a tale Claim that claimed that Cameron was a part of an underground sex ring called The Company. Cameron claimed that The Company could take Colleen to a much worse situation, and he also claimed that they put bugs in the phones of, in the phones and cars of her relatives, so they would know if she tried to escape or contact them, essentially threatening their lives and her life. Hmm. Colleen did not want to sign, but she was warned by Cameron that he, that he would sign for her and make her wish that she had. Oh. She was given the name Kay and was forced to wear a collar. This is also when Cameron started regularly raping Colleen. Hmm. Now, where's the wife? We'll get to her. Okay. We'll get to her. <laughs> okay, so the family moved to a mobile home in a more isolated area, which is where Colleen was kept in a wooden box under the hooker's waterbed. So it was, like, essentially, like, a box within a box that she was kept in. Hmm. And, like, there was her sleeping bag and a bedpan that was under there. And she was kept in there for, like, 23 hours a day. Brought out only to be tortured. And, oh. Like, she, I couldn't imagine just the lack of privacy, personally. Like, she was under the bed when the wife gave birth to their second child, like, who birthed it above her on that waterbed. Oh, God. Just awful. Jesus. At this point, 
there would be periods of time where Colleen was allowed outside of the box to clean the house and watch the Hooker's two young daughters. Colleen was found that the more she complied to the orders given to her by Cameron, the more little freedom she was allowed, including getting to jog outside once in a while. Wow. Cameron constantly brought up horror stories of what was done to other slaves by the company, and the fear of what could be done to her or her family kept Colleen from attempting to escape. And, like, it's disgusting, the amount of people that were like, well, you were given the opportunity to run, why wouldn't you? Okay, this is a nightmare situation. Like, nobody thinks that they're going to be kept inside a box for 23 hours a day. Why couldn't an organization like the company be real? Yeah. Like, this... It's not a poor job. No. Like, nobody expects something like that to happen. No. Jesus Christ. About four years into her captivity, as a reward for good behavior, Cameron let Colleen visit her family in their home. Cameron accompanied Colleen, posing as her boyfriend. Colleen's parents had reported their daughter as missing when she first disappeared, but after a couple years into her capture, Colleen was allowed to call them as a reward. It was still a surprise for her parents when she turned up with a boyfriend. Fearing that she might leave without a word, the parents did not ask any questions. Mm-hmm. Their assumption was that her that she had joined a cult. Okay. The visit went well, and there was even a picture of the happy couple. Yeah. The following day, Cameron decided that they had to return, and so they left. Mm-hmm. When they got back to the trailer, all of the little freedoms Colleen had were gone. It was back to being locked in the box under the bed for 23 hours a day. She was given one hour to eat one meal, clean her bedpan, and possibly wash up. Oh. Cameron had also, sorry, Cameron was also hopeful of abducting more young women, so he started to dig a dungeon. Oh. With Colleen forced to help dig out and build this underground dungeon, it was completed in 1983. Okay. It was under the shed in the yard and had floors and brick walls. Colleen was moved into the dungeon where she was still kept in her box, but it was moved back inside after it flooded. Oh my god. In May of 1984, Cameron allowed Colleen to get a part-time job working as a maid at a motel under the name Kay Powers. Like, and there, there's more to this Obviously, like, this is seven years of psychological torture and actual torture and just... Well, and, like, humiliation. Like, there was a point where Janice had lost her job, so um, Cameron would force Colleen to go and beg on the street for money and just, like, just shit. Like, stuff. It did not end for her. There was no respite. Mm -hmm. Now... Janice's part in all of this is very interesting. After experiencing the beatings that her husband put her through, she was happy to have him take out those urges on someone else. However, she started to resent Colleen, as Janice felt as though her husband was spending too much time with her. Janice started to want the other woman to go free and actually had taken Colleen out to bars where Janice would drink and then she would pick up men as a way to get back to her at her husband. Oh. 
Janice also started to become more involved in church, and the guilt started to creep in about what she was a part of. Confessing to her priest, not all of the details, but enough that he told her she should leave the situation. Okay. The breaking point for Janice is when Cameron told her that he wanted more sex slaves and he wanted to make Colleen his second wife. Ew. Oh. <laughs> he is delusional. Yes. Ew. Okay. Ew. Not long after this announcement, Janice drove to the motel that Colleen was working at and told her that the company was not real and that she could leave without fear of any repercussions. With a startling revelation, Colleen immediately quit her job and the two women spent the night plotting how Colleen would escape. Colleen ended up calling her father and asking for money for a bus ticket home, which he sent her immediately. Colleen called Cameron from the bus station and told him that she knew he had lied about the company and that she was leaving. Cameron actually started crying when she told him. When Colleen left, Janice asked that the woman, who had been the subject to a nightmare of a situation, not report Cameron to police. Allegedly, Janice wanted to see if he would change. I'm sorry. What? Mm -hmm. We're going to kidnap you, and I'm going to sit by while you're stuck in a box for 23 hours a day, and then have the audacity to ask that? Mm -hmm. So this lasted for three months, and Colleen didn't say anything. Like, she went home, she tried, like, she went back to her parents, she tried to kind of move forward, but she didn't report to the police. When Janice realized that her husband was incapable of changing is when he was reported, and it was Janice that made the report. Wow. Janice received immunity for testifying against her husband for the kidnap, torture, and rape of Colleen Stan. She also reported that he murdered a woman named Marie Elizabeth Spanheck, who had also been kidnapped and tortured in 1976. Mm. No remains were ever found, so murder charters were never pressed. Cameron was therefore charged with eight felony counts of rape, sodomy, and kidnapping. Both Colleen and Janice testified against Cameron Hooker in court, recounted the abuse that was inflicted on Colleen. The defense tried to argue that because Colleen was complacent to the crimes done to her, that the rape should not be considered criminal. Ever heard of Stockholm Syndrome? Well, this isn't even Stockholm Syndrome. Like, there is no way that this is Stockholm Syndrome. Oh, no, She no, no. was kept under duress. She, like, yes. she was threatened by her life to yeah. not run away. Like, that's not Stockholm no. Syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. Like. She was told she will die, and everyone she loves will die mm-hmm. if she runs. Or, yeah. if not, like, and I, like I said, he was telling her, like, women that were getting ripped apart limb by limb by the company, that were being tortured beyond what he was doing to her. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would be living in fear, too. I totally understand why. Everybody would. Yeah. Yeah. No. This is so fucked, too. Just wait. Just wait. 
There was also arguments made by a psychiatrist speaking for the defense that what Colleen endured was, quote, not much different than what Marine recruit drills are like. The Marines have to sit in a box of their own piss and shit for 23 hours? Huh. For seven years. For seven years. Okay. Yeah. <sighs> Clearly, this was disregarded as Colleen was not a willing participant in any of the horrors that she endured. And, like, the judge was like, nah, you're so out of line here, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Cameron tried to claim that Colleen had fallen in love with him and stayed of her own accord. And once again, that he was delusional. Yeah, he was delusional. He, I think he had the mentality of viewing women as property. So, like, he was encouraging his wife to go to church, but he really only followed the um, honor thy husband portion of the Bible. So he wanted multiple wives and as one does. Yep. Luckily, the jury did not believe him and Cameron Stan was sentenced to 104 years in prison. Good for him. Cameron was eligible for a parole hearing in 2015, but was denied. He will next be eligible in 2030. But due to the pandemic, Cameron Hooker was scheduled to be like, to see if he should be classified as a sexually violent predator. Yes. And that would result in him being confined to a state hospital. So mm-hmm. I don't know the outcome of that, but that was the latest reports of where he's at. As for Colleen Stan, she studied for an accounting degree after the trial and tried to, quote, make a normal life for herself. She has since changed her name and has volunteered at an organization that helps abused women. Good. And, yeah, like, otherwise, it's, like, kind of sad. Like, she's got a few bad marriages and, I guess, this troubled child. But, like, you know, she's got out and she's volunteering. She's mm-hmm. trying to do the best she can with dealing with what she's been through. So. I feel like I said this a few episodes ago, but I truly feel like people should have to suffer the same punishment that they inflicted. Um, I feel like if he was trapped in a box for 25 hours a day, I wouldn't really be sad. (laughs) I don't know. I wish that we did know more about him and his background. And mm. same with her. Because, like, how does somebody get so warped that they start believing that, well, she hasn't run away, she must love me, when, like, you've tormented her and psychologically tortured her? hmm Like. Well, and let's also, like, stop and think, if your husband ever came to you and was like, I want a sex slave. After abusing you. you got to think, too, though. Like. This is in no way, like, condoning what she was a part of, but she was 15 years old when they met. Right. She, this is the first person that's ever given her any sort of affection, and this was a chance for her to stay with someone who she loved Mm -hmm. and not get beat and get to have a child. 
fucking pathetic. He needs to rot. Mm-hmm. He's fucked. So, like, like I said, not condoning, but I understand why she was like, okay, well, this is what it is. I've This is my background. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not good, but it's, like, you can understand. I do feel like now in my life, now in- I, I would have went a different direction with that answer. Absolutely, but... <laughs> there might have been a good viral moment. Let's <laughs> just say. Yeah, no, very different. What I'm curious about is the daughters. Like, there's Ooh. no information about them other than that that Colleen um, watched them and, like, they knew that she was their babysitter, but they didn't know anything else. So I'm really curious, because seven years is a long time mm-hmm. to see somebody in and out of their life. Well, and how did they never notice that she was sleeping under her parents' bed? Well, they the, had to have noticed. Or, like, maybe just that maybe mom and dad's room was off limits. Like, yeah. I don't know. But, like, I feel like there's a lot. Like, I just have more questions surrounding that. There would be a lot that. to unpack there. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Oh, well, that was my age. I'm really excited to hear yours. What a ride. <laughs> Well, I'd like to say thank you for that story, but here we are. Yes. <laughs> so my age today is for hellhounds. Ooh. Yes. So my sources were from atlasobscura.com, grunge.com, mythology.net, and good old Wikipedia. Lovely. So as stated in Britannica, Ooh. a hellhound is a dog represented in mythology, such as the ancient Greece and Scandinavian dogs as standing guards to the underworld okay dogs have been man's best friend for a very long time and according to the smithsonian they have lived alongside us for so long the details of how the partnership started have gotten muddy just like their paw prints (laughs) they quote one anthropologist saying the domestication of dogs was one of the most extraordinarily extraordinary one of the most extraordinary events in human history. Mm-hmm. This is like the most talking I've done. <laughs> a hellhound, or a devil dog, is a supernatural animal found throughout mythology, folklore, and fiction. Hellhound legends date back to ancient times, and sightings and attacks have been reported throughout history. Mm-hmm. Hellhounds tend to have black fur, glowing eyes, supernatural strength and speed they have large teeth long claws and sometimes they have multiple heads oh dang devil dogs guard the entrance to the underworld and the grounds of graveyards they also hunt lost souls and protect a supernatural treasure in european folklore seeing hellhounds or hearing it howl is seen as an omen of doom or the cause of death mm-hmm. Um, so, their physical descriptions. The hellhound's appearance varies from region to region, but whenever they pop up, they strike fear into the hearts of everyone around. I don't doubt it. The phantom canines are considerably larger than a normal dog. Yeah. A small hellhound would be about the size of a mastiff, 
while a large one can be the size of a dwarf horse or a bear. I l- okay, a dwarf horse or a bear. Like, that's kind of a large range. I would feel, so- yeah, okay, what kind of bear are we talking? Like, polar bear or, like, grizzly bear or Probably black like bear? Probably, like, a black bear. Okay, like, like a smaller it- bear, but not, like, a holy bejesus bear? Yeah. Okay. I wouldn't say a grizzly. Do you imagine? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Their hair is black as coal, and their eyes glow with an angry red or green. Ooh. The most terrifying individuals may have multiple heads, or even more eerie, they may have no head at all. I'm not a fan of that. I would rather see more heads than no heads. Yes. Like. (laughs) Yep. So, spotting a hellhound can be difficult, since they are mostly nocturnal creatures. And their black hair blends in with the darkness of the night. Still, if you keep alert, you might smell a sulfurous odor as the beast gets closer to you. Or you might notice a trail of scorched ground um, where it passes you. Ooh. So, their personality. Are they a good boy? <laughs> we'll get to Okay. <laughs> um, despite their ferocious appearance, most hellhounds are more mysterious than hostile. They rarely attack humans unless they are provoked. In fact, even if you wanted to fight one of these monsters, it would probably just run away and disappear into the darkness. Aww. Um, yeah, it would disappear into the darkness before you had time to attack it. In some stories, Hellhounds are courageous and devoted guardians. They might be assigned to guard a treasure or sacred ground, in which case they will spend an eternity guarding over their charge. Oh, they are good boys. Again, they will only attack if provoked. They're such good boys. (laughs) So hellhounds show up in many cultures and have many names, including good old Cerberus, the three-headed dog in Greece. Mm Mm-hmm. Anubis in Egyptian mythology, mm-hmm. Garmer in Norse mythology, Hero Negro in Latin America, Hidejo mm-hmm. in Mexico and Central America, and the Black Shack in England. Okay. So, on to our first segment. Hellhounds is actually a very broad term that covers what's two distinct groups of hell dogs. First are the literal hellhounds, beasts that Britannica says have traditionally cropped up in the world's mythology, usually standing guard at the underworld. Mm-hmm. These dogs are special. They're otherworldly and divine. But there is another beast that wanders the land of the living with us, and it is a different kind of hellhound that is no less terrifying, but very much more real. Mm-hmm. Folklore is rich with tales of spectral hellhounds that haunt our world, and according to Kirsten Carr of Utah State University, the black dog is particularly popular in these tales of the British countryside. Many areas, like Lincolnshire, East Anglica, Devonshire, and Somerset, have their own black dog and set of legends that they have grown up with. Hellhounds of folklore are no less more terrifying than those of mythology, though. Their appearance is almost always described as terrifying and malevolent. They're often associated with cemeteries, graveyards, or places with 
executions or particularly violent murders have taken place. Mm. And whenever they appear, they're usually said to be an omen of death. Yes, that, that makes sense. Tracks. <laughs> so let's imagine here. You're wandering the British countryside and suddenly you're aware of a massive black hellhound following you. Should you be scared? Probably. But maybe not, says Kirsten Carr of Utah State University. Not all spectral black dogs of folklore are bad. And some might even show up knowing that you are in need. Take the tale of a Mr. Wharton who told a story about a friend named Johnny. Johnny was walking through the English forest on his way to visit a friend when a massive black dog suddenly appeared at his side. The dog walked with him to his friend's home, waited outside, and rejoined him when he left. He escorted him back out of the woods and vanished at the tree line. Years later, two prisoners at York Goal confessed that they'd seen him and had every intention of killing and robbing Johnny that night, but they were de- they were deterred by the presence of the large black dog. What a good boy. Yeah. Other stories of these benevolent hellhounds are very similar. They usually appear to escort someone to their destination, and eventually that person finds out they are being targeted by someone for something horrible, only to be saved by the presence of the dog. The dogs of some areas, like Lincolnshire County, inevitably act as protectors, proving that even hellhounds can be good doggos. Yes, they are! They're so good! They just want to keep the people safe! (laughs) So, the earliest record of the sighting of a hellhound goes all the way back to 1127, and it's buried in a document called the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. The preface of the 1914 version describes it as a chronic chronological record of important events, starting with the year AD 1, the reign of Octavian and the birth of Christ. Mm. Fast forward to 1127, and along with records of a meeting between England's King Henry and Scotland's King David, there's mention of a Sunday in Petersborough. People began reporting seeing a group of hunters, but they weren't exactly earthly hunters. The hunters were black and large, lothy, and their hounds were all black, with wide eyes and wide eyes and ugly, and they rode on black horses on black bucks. Wow. So it was just men with black horses, black dogs, and they came out of nowhere. Oh, I was like picturing that they're all riding on top of each other, like the <laughs> dog is driving the horse on the star in the bus. Oh my god. This was seen in the very dear park of the town of Peterborough and in all the woods from the same town of Stanford. The monks heard the blast of the horns which they blew in the night. Is that the first sighting of a hellhound? It is impossible just to tell how long the stories have been circulating around Britain, but according to paranormal case files of Great Britain, it's the earliest record we have. Whatever was seen that night, it was important and frightening. It was enough to list amongst the annals of kings and queens. Wow. Mm-hmm. So our next section is in 2014, 
Dick Ventures, a London-based archaeological group, unearthed the bones of gigantic dogs from a shallow grave about 20 inches deep. Wow. In the ruins of Lyston Abbey, Suffolk, the archaeologists estimate the canine stood more than seven feet tall Holy. on its hind legs and weighed about 200 pounds. Dig Ventures researchers believe that the canine bones likely dated back to when the abbey was active. So are likely medieval, but they are awaiting confirmation from testing. That is so cool. Right? English folklore is full of stories about a supernatural dog known as the Black Shuck that prowled the countryside around Leston Abbey about 500 years ago. Due to the size and the date of the bones, Many have speculated that these large canine remains could be connected to the legend of the Black Shuck. Mm-hmm. We have another story. Black Shuck, Old Shuck, Old Shock, and Shuck is the name given to this medieval hellhound in England. The devil dog was said to have black fur, flaming eyes, sharp teeth and claws, and great strength. Locals described sightings of Black Shuck in graveyards, forests, and roadsides. Shuck's most famous attack happened on August 4th, 1577, at two churches in Blytheburg and Bungay in the English countryside. Wow. During a storm on August 4th, 1577, a Black Shuck reportedly broke through the doors of Holy Trinity Church in Blytheburg, about seven miles from Leston Abbey, and charged through a large congregation. It was during this attack that it allegedly killed a man and a boy. Before the church steeple collapsed through the roof, as the hellhound departed, he left claw marks on the north door of the Holy Trinity Church that are supposedly still visible today. That's wild when you consider, like, churches are supposed to be consecrated ground, so the fact that this hellhound was just able to break through. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's crazy. The same day, Black Shuck was rumored to have rampaged through St. Mary's Church in Bungie, about 12 miles away, which was described in A Strange and Terrible Wonder, a pamphlet written by Reverend Abraham Fleming in 1577. The excerpt said, This black dog, or the devil in such a likeness, running all along down the body of the church with great swiftness and incredible haste, among the people in a visible form and shape, he made a beeline through the crowd, heading for two people who knelt in prayer. They were dead before they even knew it of them. Oh, so they were targeted. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So in one day, this dog ran 12 miles and killed four people. He had a job to do. He was a good boy for oh, his mission. job. Yeah. Yeah. So... What happens after we die is one of the greatest mysteries of the world, and cultures across the world have tried explaining just where we go when we leave the land of the living. A surprising number of them have hellhounds mm-hmm. that either act as spirit guides to take our souls to their final resting place or as guards to the underworld. The most famous is Cerberus, mm-hmm. which I truly don't think I'm ever going to be able to look at Cerberus the same way again. 
because my cousin-in-law <laughs> has a dog named Cerberus, and he's a husky. So, like, let's be honest here. He's a husky. And every time I hear the name Serb, I just think of, like, Serby. <laughs> Fair enough. Yep, I just, I can't take the three-headed dog seriously anymore. <laughs> Gotta think of him as a fluffy, like, from Harry Potter. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, Cerberus, the three-headed dog, oh, sorry, the three-headed hound of Hades, he was one of the most monstrous children of Echidna and Typhon, according to some myths. Those three heads may have just been a more convenient way to depict him in art. Hesiod claimed he had 50 heads, while Pindar said he had 100. Damn, that's a lot of heads. I see why the artist chose three. Right? (laughs) Cerberus isn't alone, though. The ancient Egyptian pantheon was Wapwet. 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 A wolf god whose name means the opener of ways. It is believed that he was the one who guided souls on their path through the afterlife and was eventually absorbed into Anubius and Osiris. Mm. And the Aztecs had Exolotl, a dog for a dog or dog-headed god who carried both the sun and a human soul. Then there's Garmer, the Viking age dog, North mythology says, has been connected to the Hound of Hell. He's also been linked with another massive canine, Fenrir. Yes, I know of that one. Okay. Yeah. And while the link's uncertain, we do know he and the Underworld were connected. Mm-hmm. Ooh, okay. So next, we have the Bargest, or Barghest. It's another hellhome that roams British countryside, this time in the north. According to Britannica, seeing the Bargest was a very ill omen. Indeed, anyone who got the slightest glimpse of the monstrous dog had just months to live, while anyone who got a good long look would be dead within days. Oh, wow. Different areas had different names for their Bargest, and some had distinct terrible characteristics. The Manchester Bargist, for example, had no head. Mm-mm. In Lancashire, they called the Bargist Striker, and it was usually said his feet pointed backwards, and locals always knew he was on the prowl by his terrifying howl. Ew. Others were said to be amphibious, because being chased by a hellhound on land is not enough. I. Why be safe in the water? Why be why be safe anywhere? But like maybe if it's amphibious, maybe it's just like mildly like labs with their web. Maybe that um, could be ideal. That could be kind of cute. I mean, minus the fact that this one's a bad omen. And like I am, I'm a true lover of massive dogs, so I personally see nothing wrong with a massive black dog. No, I mean I prefer to have a head and its feet to be pointing yes. in the right direction, but otherwise, like I'm all for. A hellhound. I'm not mad at it. No. No. I wouldn't think it's a bad omen. <laughs> I feel like Jeff would have something else to say about that feeling. You'd be like, can we keep him? Yeah. Can we take him home? Friend needs a friend. Yeah, I feel like absolutely not. <laughs> so, finally, you may have noticed a trend in this story. 
How did man's best friend become a corrupted hellhound? And why are they always... It's the cats. Cats working against the dogs. Propaganda. <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> so Kristen Carr at Utah, Utah State University says there are a few fascinating things at work here. First, the color. In the Christian myth, black has typically been equated with evil, mm -hmm. the devil, and the bowels of hell. In other words, the same hell these dogs are destined to guard, but black is also the color of mourning, funerals, and death. So there's that connection too. And as for why our collective consciousness created evil dogs in the first place, it's possible it has something to do with their reputation as scavengers. While hellhounds are associated with death, execution, murder, and graveyards, real flesh and blood dogs have been recorded scavenging for anything they can find to eat. And in extreme cases, that means dead bodies. Mm -hmm. As far back as ancient Egypt, they were associated with graveyards, but there's a bit more to it. When we see animals feeding on the remains of the dead, we know there's something inherently wrong with them. The deceased wasn't cared for, and that suggests an unnatural end. From there, it is just a short hop, skip, and a jump away to the supernatural and man's best friend becoming man's worst nightmare. Mm, that's a good point. That's really interesting. So that is the tale of Hellhounds and that's super interesting. I'm really glad you covered that. Mm -hmm. I never actually realized how many different versions of a hellhound there was. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool. That is really cool. All right, that wraps us up for H. You'll have to oh. <laughs> you'll have to tune in next Tuesday. H I we cover I. Yes. Yeah. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for listening. We love to see all of the support from everybody. Please make sure to come to our social medias at C is for Creepy and hit the follow and like button. And make sure to go out and give us a rating if you enjoy the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to C is for Creepy. We put out weekly episodes every Tuesday going through the creepy alphabet. Check out our website at acast.com slash C is for creepy. Or on Facebook at C is for creepy podcast. Or on Instagram at C for creepy podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, please email us at C for creepy at gmail.com. Artwork done by Alexis Daly. Check out her work at lexxa underscore artwork on Instagram. See you next week. Bye.